Thanks, John. Pray with me. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus, to reach out and touch him and say that we love him. Open our ears, Lord, and help us to listen. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus in his name. Amen. All right, we've reached uh, yet another point of transition in our study of figuratively and literally in the final chapter of the, uh, of the Upper Room Discourse. In fact, if you, if you think about it, the discourse itself, the discourse proper where Jesus has been speaking to his disciples really has come to an end at the end of chapter 16. Because as, um, as Pastor Chris said in the call to worship, we are, we are now transitioning to a prayer. Chapter 17, the entirety of John chapter 17 is, is a prayer. It's the, it's the longest recorded prayer uh, anywhere in, in Scripture, anywhere in any of the Gospels. We see that Jesus, uh, if, you look, if you read the Gospels in their entirety, you see that Jesus places a priority on prayer numerous times throughout the Gospels, both in John and in the other Gospels. We see Jesus setting aside time, withdrawing, going out, spending time by himself in prayer. This prayer uh, is a little bit different because, um, as Pastor Chris described it last week, this is more of a, of a corporate prayer. Jesus is doing all the speaking, but he's doing it in the, in the, in the presence of his disciples. The, the 11 that remain after Judas has gone out, the 11 that remain are there, and they're listening in, perhaps, I don't know, praying along silently with Jesus as he prays. It is called the... Uh, the, the, the high priestly prayer, that's the way it's titled um, mostly, that's in the ESV, the, that's how it's entitled as well, the high, priest, the high priestly prayer, and I think that's entirely appropriate. Um, Chris quoted from Hebrews chapter 7 this morning, the, uh, the, the reality, this glorious reality that even now, right now, Jesus is interceding for us, that he lives to make intercession for those who have been saved to the uttermost, and that, that includes, I, I pray, all of us here this morning. Right now, Jesus is praying for us. It's an amazing thing. I think maybe, just in a little bit, in a way, we're, we're seeing the curtain drawn back. Maybe what we see in this prayer is sort of an idea of what Jesus might be praying for us right now. Some of the things we see in his prayer for his disciples. In fact, by the time we get to the end of the prayer, we'll see that he literally is praying for us, for you and for me, um, but we'll save that for a few weeks. Um, interestingly, though, as we begin the prayer, Jesus doesn't begin in intercession. Well, I guess maybe that's not, properly he does. He is praying, but he's not praying for his disciples. These first five verses that John just read are not a prayer for his disciples. They are a prayer for himself. He begins this prayer by by praying for himself, we, we, we've been told, uh, if you've been here for the last several weeks, that there have, uh, we've been, we've, when we made that transition to the Upper Room Discourse, that we move from um, the first section of the book, which is known as the Book of Signs. Now we're in the second section of the book, which is called the Book of Glory. I think there's no, perhaps no better uh, example of that than in these five verses. 
In these five verses, glory or glorification, either the, the noun form or the verb form, appear five times. Five times in these five verses, Jesus prays for glory. In fact, I'm calling this sermon the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, I just want you to know, when we, when we talk about the glory of Christ, the glory of God, we are talking about nothing less than the purpose for which the universe was created. And not only the purpose for the universe, but the purpose for which we were created. The reason that we're here, you know, one of the great questions of mankind, what's my purpose? Why, why am I here? Well, the answer is, uh, it's pretty simple. You are here to glorify God. First question of the Westminster Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? What is the highest and chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God. And to enjoy him forever. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor David had um, our treasure seekers quote from the, uh, the New City Catechism. Question number four, how and why did God create us? Kids, how and why did God create us? To glorify him. Yes. That is the purpose for which we are here. The reason for which... God created us. That's, that's what we're considering this morning. That's all. The glory of God. The purpose for the universe. The purpose for, for us. So what I, what I hope to do this morning, uh, I love this metaphor. You've, probably, you've heard it before. I think others, perhaps even I, have used this metaphor of this, of this jewel, a, a, a diamond or some other precious stone and we're going we're gonna to hold up this stone of the glory of Jesus Christ, and we're going we're gonna to turn it just a few times and look at three facets of Jesus' glory. The glory of Jesus' sacrifice, the glory of Christ's sovereignty, and the glory of his sonship. I see all three of those in this brief part of the prayer, this preamble to the prayer, if you will. There are probably more. You know, if you were to read it, you'd probably pick out others. But we're going to consider those three this morning. The glory of Christ's sacrifice, the glory, the glory of Christ's sovereignty, and the glory of his sonship. So let's begin. Um, Jesus begins, or Paul, uh, John begins with these words. He says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you. Begins by referring to the words that Jesus has spoken. I think primarily what he's talking about here is the discourse that he's just concluded. Began at the end of chapter 13, went all the way through chapter 14, and, and through 15 and chapter 16. This, this lengthy discourse with a few interruptions, but mostly Jesus talking, Jesus preparing his disciples for, for what's going to come next. And after he'd spoken these words, John tells us that he, that he lifted up his eyes to heaven. I thought about that. And I th certainly, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, an appropriate posture for prayer, isn't it? As you're, as you're praying to, to lift up your eyes to heaven, so you're focusing on the direction that your prayers are going. And I think that's true. Um, I think that's what Jesus is doing in a sense. But I think there's a, perhaps a greater sense here. That as he lifts up his eyes to heaven, he's also, he's also setting his focus on heaven. 
Jesus knows that the cross is coming just hours away from his sacrifice on the cross. And I think it's telling that as he begins to think about that, as he begins to prepare himself for that, he, he lifts his eyes to heaven. Pastor Chris quoted from Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews also tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that Christ endured the cross. So as he prepares himself, I, I, I feel like there's not only a posture of prayer, but he's resetting his focus. I think that, that we, that bears, that's borne out by the context of the prayer as well. He's going to, he's going to consider what, not only what is coming next in the cross, but what is coming next in his glorification and his exaltation. <clears throat> he begins by addressing God the Father. Again, we're going to talk more about his sonship later. That's our final point, the glory of the sonship of Christ. But it's telling, I guess, I think also that he, he addresses God as, as Father. And then he says this, the hour has come. You've been around for our study of John. You know what that means. You know that the hour means the hour of his death. Throughout the Gospel of John, up until around chapter 12, Jesus sometimes avoids crowds and yet come. over his way around because the hour has not yet come. The hour of his death has not yet come. And then when we get to chapter 12, he makes the announcement that the hour has come. And then again at the beginning of chapter 13, as he gathers with his disciples, we're told again that the hour has come. And then here he says it again, the hour has come simply means that the time for his death has arrived. That the cross that has been, it's been looming for the entirety of his life, really, when you think about it, but now we're coming to fruition. It's coming to the time where the cross is imminent. It's not only here. We're talking about the glory of Christ's sacrifice. He says, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. But then he says this in verse 4. He says, I glorified you on earth, having, <clears throat> on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I take that to mean, when he talks about the work, I take that also to mean the cross. Now, scholars are, you know, they, 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 as scholars are, 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 tend to be, are divided somewhat about what it is that Jesus is talking about here. Um, to me, I, I, when, he, when he talks about the work that, this, that was given him to do, I think primarily he's talking about his work of redemption, the work that will come about through his sacrifice. Just to have some uh, support for that, I, uh, after, after I thought through this, I, I went to my good friend D.A. Carson, and uh, it's always good when D.A. Carson uh, agrees with you. I, I find that's uh, it's heartening. Uh, he writes this in his commentary. Throughout his ministry, God, Jesus has brought glory to God on earth. That is, Jesus has so clothed the Father with splendor that many human beings, creatures of the earth and not of heaven, have come to praise him. After all, the incarnation itself was a display of glory. Oh, I lost my page. There it is. Okay. The difficult point of this verse is the uncertainty as to whether the work that Jesus has completed refers to everything he has done up to this point, or proleptically, I'm going to look that one up, proleptically includes his obedience unto death, the death that lies immediately ahead. 
Either interpretation could be made to fit the passage. Some have argued for the former by appealing to the contrast implicit in the words, and now, the beginning of verse 5, which introduced the glorification of Jesus, that is, his death and exaltation. This misses the mark. There is certainly a contrast between verse 4 and verse 5, but it is not between previous work that Jesus has completed and his cross work that lies immediately ahead. Rather, a contrast is drawn between the glory that Jesus, by his work, has brought to the Father on earth and the glory he asked his Father to give him in heaven. Once that is seen, it makes best sense if verse 4 includes all the work by which Jesus brings glory to his Father. And that includes his own death, resurrection, and exaltation. I think both, in both places, at the beginning of the prayer when he says, the hour has come, and then again in verse 4 when he says, I have glorified you by completing the work that you have, gave me, you have given me to do, having accomplished that work. I think both of those speak of Jesus' sacrifice. Again, it's interesting to me, um, if, if, the, if that interpretation is true, I believe it is. He speaks of the work having already been accomplished. The work of the cross having already been accomplished. He speaks of it in the, as if it is in the past tense, as if it has already occurred. I think that just speaks of his certainty. His assurance that it, it's as if it has already happened. It's as if... It has already been accomplished, this sacrifice that Jesus came to give. Now, this, this theme of sacrifice, I think it's true of, of, of all three of these facets, the sacrifice and, and the sovereignty and the sonship. These are, these are themes that we've seen throughout the Gospel of John. If you think back to the very beginning, think about John the Baptist when he introduces Jesus to the crowd. What is it that he says? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's sacrificial language. That's language about sacrifice. Or again, in, in chapter 3, when Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, and he says, just up. That's, that's sacrificial language. That's talking about the sacrifice that is to come. We're here in, uh, in chapter 10, when he's talking about being the good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and they know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Later, no one takes, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. All this is language of sacrifice. And then again in chapter 12, picking up in verse 32, Jesus says this, And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So we've seen this theme, this, this facet of Jesus' glory throughout the, the Gospel of John. But here it's brought into, into, into distinct focus. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. It's a, it's a paradox. 
it's 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 from a human standpoint it it almost doesn't make sense how is it that it, at jesus time of most abject abasement at, at his time of the greatest degradation that somehow that becomes his hour of greatest glorification well, it's because in the cross in jesus sacrifice we see the mercy of god we see the justice of god the glory of both of those attributes of god we see god's love made manifest all of those things are are glorious and we see that glory coming in christ and through his sacrifice now, for us it's paradoxical for for Christ, it's integral to who he is and, and, and for the purpose for which he came. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work, the cross work that you gave me to do. So that's one facet, one aspect of the glory of Christ that we see here in this preamble to his prayer. We see the glory of Christ's sacrifice. It is glorious. And we see this, this, Jesus goes on in, in verses 2 and 3, says this. We'll just, we'll just ramp, ramp ourselves up to it. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And this I see the glory of Christ's sovereignty. His, his authority, the authority that's been granted to him by the Father. He's talked about this elsewhere in the gospel. Uh, if, you, if you look at uh, back in chapter 5, Jesus talks this way. This is the way he speaks about the authority that he has been given. Picking up in verse 21. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but all judgment has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So we see here this authority that has been given by the Father to the Son. And it's, 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 it's a sovereign authority. In this context and in other contexts in the gospel, we see sovereignty, this sovereignty over our salvation, that, this, that the glory of the sovereignty of Christ is seen most manifest in his sovereignty over salvation. To be sure, he has sovereignty over everything. He has sovereign control over everything that happens in the universe. But here we see it brought to focus most clearly, I think, in his sovereignty over salvation. And again, this is a theme that we have seen over and over and over again throughout the gospel. If you go back to the very beginning, to the preamble, we are told this. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is a, an expression of, of the authority that Christ has, the authority, the glory of his sovereignty in our salvation. 
And then again, in chapter 3, when he's talking with Nicodemus, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel what I said to, when I, that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. See, this, the, the freedom of the Spirit to move as He wills. That's part and parcel of this authority that Christ has, His sovereignty over our salvation. Or again, in chapter 6, this is chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Again, we're seeing this authority, the authority to, to grant eternal life that Jesus talks about here in his prayer. This is an authority that comes through and, and, and is a part of his sovereignty over our salvation. Then again, this is in chapter 10. Uh, if we look at uh, verses 24 through 29 of chapter 10, Jesus says this. The Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And this is Jesus' answer. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. It's interesting, he doesn't say, You, do not, you are not my sheep because you, are not, you do not believe. He says, You don't believe because you are not among my sheep. And he says this, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So again, over and over, sovereignty. In Jesus' prayer this morning, we see that he has this sovereignty. He has an authority that has been granted to him by the Father, an authority that is over all flesh, and he is able to grant, to give eternal life to all those that the Father has given to him. The implication is that, that there are those that the Father has, and then he gives to the Son those that he has, and then the Son grants to those that have been given to him eternal life. It's, it's the sovereign will of God that leads to our salvation. That's what we see here, this, this glorious facet of Christ's glory we see in his authority over our salvation, his sovereignty. And then verse 3, this is almost a, a commentary, maybe a bit of a, a parenthetical statement, but it's part and parcel of what Jesus is praying. He says this, and this is eternal life that they know you. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I think that might be a little bit of a different definition than we might expect when we think about what it means to live eternally, what it means to have been granted salvation. We, we, I think we sometimes think of that in terms of faith, and yes, faith is required, certainly. But I, I don't know about you, I almost expect Jesus to say, and this is eternal life, that they believe in you, that they have, that they have faith in you. 
that they trust in you. I might have expected Jesus to say that at this point, and he doesn't. He says, this is eternal life that they, that they know you. I think perhaps we're seeing a little bit deeper definition. If you've been around for any of our, our study of John, this, this idea of faith has been um, a, little bit, a little bit difficult to wrap our, our, our arms around. We've seen multiple instances where people have, have professed faith where it says that they believed in Jesus, and then shortly after we see that their faith is somehow um, deficient, that their faith in Jesus was not, was not enough. It wasn't a saving faith. It was um, what we have called an, perhaps an easy believism, where they believed good things about Jesus, but they didn't truly believe in him. They didn't truly trust him. I think that's what's being expressed here. This is eternal life. It's not... It's not faith so much as it's, it's, as it's a knowing, or, or maybe to put it more clearly, it's a faith that leads to a knowing. It's a believing that, believe, that leads to, a, to an intimacy with God. It's beyond just a head knowledge. It's a, it's a knowledge of who Jesus is that, that, that infiltrates our hearts. This word know in scripture is an intimate word. It's, it's used when it's it, over and over again in Scripture when it talks about a man who knows his wife, and then they have a child. If I could, no, just, I'll just leave it at that. It's, it, it's, it's an intimacy. It's a knowledge that, that's not just in the head, but it's a knowledge that's, that's in the heart. And that's what Jesus, I think, is saying here. Eternal life le- comes from, springs from, perhaps leads to, a knowledge of God, an intimacy with God. Again, it's expressed this way. Uh, this, again, is from the preamble. John writes this, No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. No one has ever seen God, the only God, speaking of Jesus, speaking of the Word who came and was made flesh, the only God who was at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And that's what Jesus is praying here, that He has granted eternal life to those who the, whom the Father has given to Him. And what's the definition of that eternal life? It's, it's an intimacy, it's a, it's a knowing of God that is been revealed to us by Jesus himself. So that's the second facet, the facet of of sacrifice, the glory of Christ's sacrifice, and then the glory of Christ's sovereignty, primarily here, his sovereignty over our salvation, his granting that leads to eternal life. And then finally, I see this third facet, this facet of sonship. And it really sort of permeates the entire, uh, this entire preamble. He, as I mentioned earlier, he refers to God as Father. And then in the first part of this prayer, he, uh, or this part of the prayer, he, he refers to himself in the third person as Son. So it's almost as if he doesn't want us to miss this. 
He prays to the Father, then he says, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. He's, he's speaking of himself in the third person, and he's, he's emphasizing this father-son relationship. And then in verse 5, he says this, and this is, this is glorious. You know, everything he said so far is glorious. This is, this is ex exceedingly glorious. He says this, and now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And again, I, I can't help but think of, of, what, of what the writer to the Hebrews said, that it was for the joy that was set before him. It was for the prospect of what was coming after the cross that he endured the cross. And he says in, in verse 4, I've, I've accomplished the work you gave me to do. I've accomplished this cross work. The, the, the work of redemption, the sacrifice that I have come to give, I've accomplished that. And, he's, and he's, it's as if he's looking past it, looking forward to what is to come, a restoration of what has been true from all eternity. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had, before, I had with you before the world existed. And I think we're getting a glimpse now into, into the throne room of God. Think about what was going on in the Godhead from time immemorial, from the beginning before time existed, eternally, this shared glory. And we talk about the, the Trinity and the, and, the, and, the, and the shared community that is inherent in the Godhead. This shared love that is inherent in the Godhead. Here we see that it's, that it's a shared glory that is inherent in the Godhead. That the Father glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies the Father. The Spirit's not mentioned here, but I don't think he's left out. The Spirit glorifies the Father and glorifies the Son. The Son and the Father glorify the Spirit. There's this mutual glorification going on and has been going on for eternity. And we are sharing in that. I don't know about you, but I think that is, that is marvelously glorious. That this sharing of glory that has been going on since, time, since before time began, since before the world existed, we are somehow given an opportunity to, to partake in that. And again, we've seen this already from the very beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The idea that Jesus Christ, the, the, the Word, as it says in verse 14, the Word that became flesh has been existing has been in existence, coexistence with the Father and the Spirit for eternity. Before the worlds were made, they were glorifying one another, and then Jesus was integral in the creation of the world. And of course, verse 14, Then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth gloriousness that is 
part and parcel of who the Godhead is. This eternally shared glory, it has been going on since before time began. And there's also this idea that when Jesus as son and Jesus as he relates to the father, there's this relationship between the two that is uh, unmistakable. If you think back just a, a few chapters ago in chapter 14, Philip said this, actually leading up to it. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus says, perhaps with this, just a little, just a little shake of the head. <clears throat> Have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. His sonship, it's an identification with the Father that is glorious. That from time immemorial, they have shared in this eternal glory, and there's an identification with the Son and the Father. And there's this sense that Jesus is anticipating his, his return to that. He's come and he's, he's taken upon himself our flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is preparing himself for the sacrifice that he came to give. He's exercising the authority that he has, the sovereignty that he has, and he's an anticipating, fully experiencing this Sonship, this eternally shared glory, kind of picking up perhaps where he left off when he came. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And the amazing thing to me is, is that, as I said, we um, somehow become partakers in that glory I don't want to step on anybody's toes. In a couple of weeks, though, we're going to look at this prayer that Jesus prays, not only for his disciples gathered there, but for all those who will believe throughout the centuries, including us. And he makes this statement. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That's a statement that should shake us to our boots, to our shoes, to whatever it is we're wearing on our feet, to the core of our being. You see, this glory that we've been we've been we've been looking at, this 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 jewel that we've been considering, this glory that is in Jesus Christ, He shares with us. In fact, he shares it with us to the extent that he, that it, it's as almost as if it, it has already happened. If you think about what Paul says in Romans 8, he says that, that our glorification, he speaks of our glorification in the past tense. Just as Jesus spoke about the work that he accomplished in the past tense, Paul speaks of our glorification 
as if it has already occurred. It's really a remarkable thing. The glory that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have been sharing before, since before the world existed, we also are partakers in that. The glory that the Father has given to the Son, the Son now gives to us. It's an incredible thing. It's a remarkable thing. It's a glorious thing. So I'll leave you with this. The, uh, the week that's to come, we're going to, well, we're actually going to gather tonight to, to celebrate Thanksgiving. I'm sure you have things planned for this week where you also will celebrate Thanksgiving. Uh, you know, that can include you know, turkey or some other delicious protein, lots of wonderful sides, you know, maybe a pumpkin pie or two, three, okay, great. And other pies of other, of other sorts. Um, might I suggest to you that as you gather to give thanks, that you might find some things here in this preamble to Jesus' prayer to be thankful for. As you gather with your family, as you think, what, if you do that thing where you go around the table and everybody says something that they're thankful for, Perhaps we have here in these five verses a resource to draw from. Maybe we could say as we, as we go around the table, I am thankful for Christ's sacrifice on my behalf. I'm thankful that he came and took upon himself my flesh and then paid the price for my sin so that I didn't have to pay it. That he died the death I should have died so that I can live the life that he lives. Maybe that's something we could express thankfulness for. Or maybe we could express thankfulness for being called by God. That, that God in his mercy called us to himself. That as Jesus says, he drew us. And that we have been granted eternal life. That we as one that the Father is, has, has given to Jesus have been granted this eternal life. We've been granted this knowledge of God and who he is. We, we can have this intimacy with him. That we have been taken from the, the realm of darkness to the realm of light. That we who were once dead in our trespasses and sins have now been made alive in him. Maybe, just maybe, that might be something as you're going around the table, you might say, this is something that I'm, that I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for Christ's sovereignty over my salvation. And maybe you might want to express thanks for this eternal relationship of glory that has been going on since before time began, and that miraculously, gloriously, we have been included in that, that we, too, have been made sons and daughters of God, that we can call him Father, just as Jesus did, that Jesus now is our brother, I don't know, maybe that might be something as you're going around the table on Thanksgiving Day. You might want to give thanks for. We do have much to be thankful for in this glorious jewel of the glory of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me?
Father, we do give you thanks. We give you glory. imperfect. And we also acknowledge that it's the reason for which we were created. It's our chief end. It's the, the purpose. It's the why of our creation. So, Lord, I just pray for, for myself and for my friends here that we will grow in our capacity to live lives that are glorifying to you. That in word and in deed, we would, we would bring you glory. And we thank you for, for Jesus and the glory of his sacrifice for us, the glory of his sovereignty the glory of this, of this relationship, Father, Son, glorification that we are partakers of. We, we thank you for all of those things. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.